Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Calvin S. Cato. I would put that Eminem CD in, and every time I would, he'd be like, that white boy is so angry! (laughs) And so crazy! That and more, but before that, I want to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon member, Dave Gibney. We always give a little shout out to anyone who gives $25 a month or more, but you can give any amount per month that you want if you go to become a Patreon member of ours at patreon.com slash risk. There's about 20 hours at this point of bonus stories over there, not to mention all the check-ins. You know, we're, we're having people record their reactions now. Fans are recording their reactions to particular risk stories and sending those in, and we're playing those, and I'm responding to fans' responses. We're doing interviews with all the members of the staff and some of the storytellers. There's all kinds of great stuff to find at patreon.com slash risk. Listen, if everyone gave just a dollar a month that listens to this show regularly, we would be able to do so much more. So check it out, patreon.com slash risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is bamboos behind me now it is labor day but i am laboring (laughs) i'm very excited about this episode though because we have three spectacular stories on it it's a really solid one i I did want to say speaking of spectacular stories we have our halloween episode coming up I mean, you know, in a while. And we have our Christmas episode, our holidays, our winter holidays episodes coming up. So listen, we need you to pitch us your scary stories, your stories that kind of would seem to fit in the horror genre sort of stories for Halloween time, and your Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, winter holidays sorts of stories for our uh, end of December episodes. So... Pitch us. There are all kinds of helpful tips on our submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions. There's even a little video there where for five minutes I explain to you how to pitch us. So go check it out, risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Janelle Codiani. Holy she just blew me away the story that she told at the risk live show that we last did in boston but before janelle we're going to hear from laura cassenti also blew me away the last time that risk was in toronto just a couple of weeks ago so let's get to laura cassenti now with a story we call the cookie tin So it was 1999, and I had a six-month-old baby who never slept. I also had a brand new job 
as a pregnancy support worker at a clinic for homeless youth in downtown Toronto. And I had something else. I had a really, really bad case of imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome is that feeling that you get what doesn't matter how qualified you are for a job, you're just waiting for that person at work to tap you on the shoulder and say, you're such a stupid idiot. You have no idea what you're doing. And I realized that I've had this my entire life. I've had it with every single job I've ever had. And I especially had it with motherhood. But I knew what it was. I had a name for it. And I moved forward. And I started my brand new job. It was the most beautiful setting I've ever worked in. It was an old heritage house downtown. Every day when I walked up the steps to that place, I was just in awe about how beautiful it was. You know, you walked in, and the first floor was where the doctors and the nurses would see the kids that came in. And then there was this amazing wooden ornate staircase that led up to the second floor, and my office was at the top of that staircase. It was really tiny, but I just loved it. My first couple of days there, one of the nurses called me, and she said, I have a patient for you. She's a young girl, 16 years old. She's grown up in foster care and foster family, foster family, and then she was in group homes. And when she turned 16, she signed herself out of care and moved back home with her mom, who had a really significant crack cocaine addiction. And her mom couldn't pay the rent, and they got evicted from their apartment, and now they were both living on the streets. And the girl was pregnant and had dropped out of school. And I'm thinking, okay, it's like my first client. Mm, imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome. The nurse said, I'll call you when she comes into the clinic, which she did a couple of days later. So the nurse called, come downstairs, come and meet this girl. So I ran down the big staircase. I ran around the corner, knocked on the clinical door. And when I went in, the nurse was at her desk. And this young girl was sitting on this plastic chair beside the nurse. And she was very small, very thin, and she had this white, blonde hair. And she was so pale, she almost looked translucent to me. And the nurse introduced us, and she turned and looked at me <laughs> with total disgust. And she had the biggest pale blue eyes I've ever seen, but they were encased in like the angriest black eyeliner that I've ever seen in my life. And I was like a punk in the late 70s, so I know angry eyeliner. And this kid, oh my God, like so angry. So the nurse said, oh, this is Laura, you know, pregnancy support worker. She's going to help you through your pregnancy. And we were met with this. And then I got an eye roll, and I thought, oh, my God. And the nurse could see me kind of panicking a little bit, and she said, oh, you know, and you can see Laura once a week, and she'll give you free prenatal vitamins, and she'll give you subway tokens, and she'll give you uh, food cards to go to the grocery store to get food. And I'm thinking, like, okay, way to sell me. Like, this girl is not coming for my personality, clearly, but that was okay. So she would come and see me once a week, and we would sit in my tiny office, our knees almost touching, and she would say nothing, absolutely nothing. She would just sit there and stare at me. And then she'd hold out her hand and she'd say, are you gonna give me my free shit? <laughs> and I did. So I would give her the free shit, and. You know, and she'd get up and she'd leave, and then she would stick her head back in my door and she'd say, See you next week. <laughs> but, okay. So she did that. She kept coming back, and we'd sit there. And I started to realize that what she didn't need was yet another social worker telling her what she needed to do to fix her life. She didn't need that. What she really needed was like a reprieve from her life. She needed a reprieve from her mom, who she'd been taking care of, a reprieve from being homeless, and a reprieve from sleeping outside. And I kind of felt like I needed a reprieve too. My baby was still not sleeping through the night, and I was so tired. 
and I felt like I was doing a shitty job at home and a shitty job at work, and I was exhausted. So we would sit in my office in this weird co-conspiratorial silence. <laughs> we would just sit there, and it was okay. And, you know, she'd hold out her hand, and I'd give her the free shit, and she'd go. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is kind of working. And then one day she came in, and uh, she looked at me, and I'm thinking, oh, look at that eyeliner doesn't look quite so angry today, right? And she said, you know, Laura, and then I'm thinking, oh, my God, she actually knows what my name is, right? And she said, Laura, you know, I've been thinking, said, I think if I'm going to raise my baby, I'm going to have to move into a maternity home, you know? And she said, I don't want my baby going into foster care. So I'm going to have to go to a maternity home or maybe like a special shelter or go back to school. Like, what do you think? And <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of exactly what you need to do. And she said, yeah, do you think you can help me with that? And I'm like, yeah, that's actually part of my job. Like, I can help you with that. Oh, my God. So I did. I got her into a maternity home. She went back to school, and that was the day that everything changed. I felt like there was a connection, and she started to get connected to other women. She was coming to this prenatal group that I ran in the basement of the clinic for other pregnant girls, and she made friends. And she would come and see me a couple of times a week, and we would really talk about things. And I remember the day when I said to her, you know, I think you're going to be a really good mom. And she said, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm going to be a really good mom. And and that was around the time she would have been about seven months pregnant. And that was the last time I saw her. She never came back after that. I called the maternity home. They didn't know where she was. I asked the other girls that came to the prenatal group, and nobody had seen her. She had made it to seven months pregnant, happy, connected, and she was gone. I didn't know what to do. I went and I spoke to the nurse who initially referred her to me, and I, I said, you know, I'm really worried, and I can't find her. And the nurse said to me, you know, Laura, this is the hardest part of working with street kids. Sometimes they just disappear, and we don't know what happened to them. And I said, well, what, like, what do you do? And she's like, well, I tell myself they're living on a nice farm with rich relatives somewhere. <laughs> I'm like, oh... And she said, but you know, you're going to have to figure out how to negotiate this because this is the hardest part of this work, but our work is important. So you're going to have to figure this out. And that was really hard for me. I, every day I was worried about her and I, I didn't know. I felt very helpless, but I, I carried on. You know, and about another month went by and I was getting ready to leave work one night and the secretary called me and she said, she's here, she's downstairs, do you want to see her? And I'm like, yeah, of course I want to see her, oh my God. So I went to the top of the stairs and I looked down and she was standing at the bottom of the stairs, all dressed in black, and she had a hoodie on that was covering her head. And she started to walk up the stairs and every single step was labored. And it looked like she was carrying the weight of the world on her back. It was so slow and almost painful to watch her. And she started to walk up, and she was holding this thing. And I looked, it was like this purpley blue Cadbury finger cookie, you know, special edition cookie tin. And in my head, I'm like, oh, cookies, mm, that's nice. And then she looked up at me, and her face was so even more pale than it usually was but her eyes were swollen and they were red and the rims were so red that it looked like it would have hurt to blink and she just put her head down and pulled the cookie tin close to her and she walked right past me and just walked right into my office and sat down so I followed her and I sat there and our knees were touching and I knew better than to start questioning her. So I just thought, okay, we're going to sit in silence. Like, I can do this. And we were sitting there, but it didn't feel right. Like, it just, it felt, it felt weird, and it didn't feel good. 
And I started to feel a little bit panicky, and I looked at her hands holding this cookie tin, and they were so red and chapped, and her knuckles were white. She was holding this tin so tight, and her fingernails had just been bitten down to the quick, and they were crusted with blood. And I just thought, oh my God, I can't, I don't, I don't know what to do here. And I started to feel really panicky, and the only noise in the room was the clock ticking. And I, I felt like we'd been in there for hours. It was probably only a couple of minutes that we'd been sitting there, but it just felt like hours. And finally, she looked up at me, and she said, Laura, my baby died. And then she put her head down, and she pulled the cookie tin right into her chest. And I just thought, holy fuck. Oh, my God. I thought, I can't do this. And I... I, I thought, I'm going to have a panic attack. I cannot fucking do this job. I can't do this. I don't know what to say to her. I don't want to be in this room. I want to get out of here. And I just wanted to get up, run out of my little office, run down the stairs, run home, and pick up my own baby and just smell his head and have that familiar smell of him and hold him tight and keep him safe. And I just, I can't fucking do this. And I closed my eyes to try and stop myself from having a full-blown panic attack. And when I opened them, I saw her sitting there. And I thought, you know, she's here. And she's here to see me. And I cared about her. And I thought, I have to do something. I can't run away. And so in my head, I just, I started to scramble. And I thought... What would a real social worker do right now? <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I, I leaned in, and I put my hand on her arm, and in my very best social worker voice, I said to her, <clears throat> is your baby in the cookie tin? <laughs> Her head snapped up, and she said, what the fuck? What the fuck is wrong with you, Laura? Oh, my God. No, my fucking baby's not in the cookie tin. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. (laughs) And then she started to laugh. And then I started to laugh, and then we were both laughing. And in that moment, the only thing bigger than my embarrassment and my shame was my relief. (laughs) Oh, God. So then she said to me, Laura, you know, I, I wasn't feeling well for a couple of days, and I went to the hospital, and it turned out that I'd been losing my amniotic fluid, and I didn't know. And I was in premature labor. And when I gave birth to my baby, my baby was stillborn. Oh, I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And she opened up the cookie tin, and she showed me what was inside. And inside was this little clipping of white blonde hair that was just like her hair, and... There was a little hospital bracelet with her baby's name on it. And there were photos of her holding her baby. And then there was this beautiful sheet of embossed paper that had these tiny, tiny little handprints and footprints on it. And we talked for hours that night, you know, and I knew she would keep coming back to see me for a while because she needed to process what happened. But I also knew there was going to come a time when she didn't need to come back anymore. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I think about her a lot. That was over 20 years ago. And I think about her usually around Christmas time when they bring out these special edition Cadbury chocolate finger cookie tins, you know. And I like to picture the two of us, 20 years older, 20 years wiser, and more settled in our lives than we were back then. And I I picture both of us 
in our respective grocery stores with our carts and we're going down the cookie aisle and we both look over and we see that familiar purpley blue tin and we both stop and we remember that shared moment of loss and of laughter and of resilience. Thank you. Now we're all going to think that when we see those cookie tins. <laughs> Saw you with the box. What was in the box? What's in the box? What's in the fucking box? No! No! Oh, God! Oh, God! So I hoped the text sounded business-like. Hello, I have a question. I know I said I just wanted to talk, but instead, could you help me have an orgasm? I've been seeing him off and on for about a year. I hadn't asked for anything quite like this. Actually, he'd never touched my pussy before. When I first made this appointment with my sex worker, I just wanted to say goodbye before he left on sabbatical. But I'd met some new, attentive lovers, and I was frustrated that I still couldn't just get off easily. I thought this might be my last chance to work on it. I'll explain. I was married for 10 years, and my husband and I had different sexual goals. I wanted erotic, pleasure-filled transformation, and he wanted orgasms, primarily his. I loved him dearly, and I I found myself doing whatever I could to meet his needs in the hopes that at some point he would make room for my desires, too. But when I would ask him for simple things, like to slow down or stop or to do something different, he would get frustrated, sometimes turn his back on me in the bed, or leave the room altogether to jerk off in the bathroom while I stayed under the covers and cried. I mean, I was having orgasms holding a vibrator to my clit while he diligently fucked me from behind, asking, did you go? Sometimes I would get my courage up and ask, what I would love is for you to just focus on me for the night and not have an orgasm. (laughs) Janelle, that's a lot to ask. And I didn't question why it wasn't a lot to ask of me. By the time we got divorced, I was completely and thoroughly convinced that the things that I liked and needed were way over the top, ridiculous demands that no one in their right mind would put up with. But I was happy to be single, so I like got out there. And occasionally, very occasionally, someone would ask what I wanted, and I found myself like avoiding the subject or saying that what I wanted was their pleasure, which wasn't untrue. I do enjoy that. But at one date, I was slowly assaulted. And I watched my body shut down. And I was unable to say anything. Like, stop. Slow down. Don't come in my mouth. And I realized not being able to ask for what I want is physically dangerous. Now, I didn't know what I wanted, because I had never really focused on my own pleasure. So I was like, I got this, figure it out on my own, build a fire in my wood stove, make a little nest of blankets, and sit there naked, touching my skin in a sexy way, dripping my hands in oils, massage my breasts. I'd slide my fingers around and into myself, trying to connect to any kind of pleasure, finding myself completely unable worried my body didn't trust me. Now, a person can only sob themselves to sleep with their fingers in their vagina so many times before admitting they need help. 
And I knew this was too vulnerable for me to explore with casual partners, and I wasn't ready for love. I didn't know much about professional sex work, but I had listened to a podcast years ago about a woman who was a sexological bodywork. Picture, if you will, massage, Reiki, and also your genitals if you want. Now, there's one in Puritan, New England, about four hours north of here. And so I called him up, explained my predicament. At the end of our conversation, I said apologetically, I can't seem to do it on my own. I was embarrassed that I was like so afraid of my own sexuality that I essentially had to hire a spotter. He told me it can't be done by yourself. We made an appointment to meet each other at a coffee shop, and on the long drive up there, I chewed my fingernails down to ragged stumps. And I walked into this wide open space to see people on their computers at tables that looked like they were made out of old barns. And I saw him in the corner with a white button-up linen shirt on, smiling warmly. And I thought, thank God he's attractive. Who knows who does this kind of work, right? So I walk over and I sit down and he explains how this kind of body work goes. Essentially, it's one-way touch. He stays clothed, I can get as naked as I want, he can use his hands or toys if I feel comfortable, no kissing, no oral sex. He says, if you say you need to like hold onto my dick to feel aroused, that's not a go. Is this legal? Oh no, not at all, he tells me. He worked out of his home, so for our first appointment, I drove there. He welcomes me in, smiling warmly, takes me into his kitchen, asks if I want tea. Sure. Uh, He puts the kettle on to boil behind him, and he asks me, you know, small talk questions, which I'm assuming is normal for your uh, sex work appointment, um, about my drive and what I've been doing. I take in the surroundings, and his kitchen looks like he cooks. His utensils are, like, specific and organized. And I wonder who he cooks for, and if I'm allowed to ask, and if the ginger tea will make my stomach grumble. He takes me into a sunny room at the front of the house. There's a little couch in the corner, a massage table. There are shelves filled with lotions and oils, books on massage and anatomy. There's a crock pot full of warm towels and a vase of feathers, I'm pretty sure aren't for decoration. But it looks like every other massage room I'd been in, giving me the false impression that this is like a totally normal way to spend a Saturday. We sit down on two cushions across from each other, and I instantly scoot back about a foot and a half away from him and then weave all of my limbs together in front of me like a fortress. He notices but doesn't say anything. We decide that because the point of this is for me to learn to use my voice while things are happening, that it'll be my job to direct the sessions. If I stop breathing, stop responding, stop telling him what to do, he'll just pause, wait for me to come back. I say that sounds great and proceed to chat nervously for a very long time, letting my tea go cold in my hands. After about an hour, he asks, do you want to include anything physical in this session? I freeze. And he helps me, offering, maybe just start with asking me to hold your hand. I regret moving so far away. I lose sensation in my hands. I can't breathe. I can hear this simple request knocking around in my brain, but I can't get any words out of my mouth. Watching myself struggle with this, being completely unable to say any words brings the enormity of the rejection and abuse I suffered in my marriage crashing down around me. He sits there, patiently watching me sob with his hands open in his lap for two excruciating hours. Eventually motivated by a desire not to waste the money, I'm a Taurus, uh, I... (laughs) managed to get the words, will you please hold my hand, out of my mouth. His hands are softer than I expect them to be, and he holds mine while I cry for the rest of the session. 
On my drive home, I pull into a, a little beach town that's still boarded up from the winter, and I walk down to the ocean, lay in the sand, and hope the wind will just bury me because it took me three hours to ask for hand-holding. It's going to take a million dollars and the rest of my life to get out from underneath all of this fear. The next session goes pretty much the same, and he says, Janelle, you need to ask for what you want. People want to know. They don't, I tell him. They really don't. No one you'll be with, again, doesn't want to know. And I try to believe him and ask him to hold my hand. By the third session, I show up in a specific shirt. It's loose and soft, and I say, "Um, I want to take my bra off and have you touch me over this fabric, just like loosely touch me over this fabric. Is that okay? I brace myself for scorn, expecting him to tell me that most people want something a little more adventurous for their money. But he just says, of course, like it's a totally reasonable thing to ask for. I feel humiliated to want something so simple, but it feels incredible to be touched so softly. The next session, I show up with a robe, and I say, okay, so I want to get naked, and then I'll wear this robe, and you sit on the floor, and then I'll sit in front of you and and lean against you, and you can kind of put your arms around me to the front from behind and, like, touch me like that. It's a lot of words just to ask to be held. I lean my head against his chest, and he touches me softly over my belly and my breasts. And the moment I start to enjoy it, I blurt out, is it boring? He pauses for a minute and leans in and tells me, nothing about this is boring. The last time I'd seen him, I managed to get completely naked on the massage table. I was able to ask him to massage my legs, pull my hair a little, touch like the tiny spot where your thigh meets your ass. That's great, I learned. Um, But toward the end of the session, I rolled onto my side and I was uh, bradily disappointed. He pulls up on a yoga ball, sit facing me. He knows something's wrong. I just, I thought that once I got through all of my fears and hang-ups, that my sexuality would show up like dangerous and sultry, like easy. I had done my work. I had done literal homework, which was masturbating and writing about it in a shared Google document so he could keep track of my progress. This dude had read about me blowing dildos by myself and fingering my own ass. I had spent a considerable amount of money and showed up to these appointments, cried through a bunch of bullshit fears, and I thought that what I would get for all of my work was like cool girl sexuality. Like desires that were easy to meet, that didn't care how it happened. That like it the way you like. My sexuality is like silly and awkward. It's like slow and playful. It's innocent. I finished disgusted. There is a lot of innocence here, he said, smiling. Well, it's not what I wanted. No one will do this with me. Oh, people want this, Janelle. But what about men? Do men want this? He said that they do. I think he probably doesn't have a lot of experience. (laughs) But after that meeting, I had found people that wanted that. And I showed up awkward and silly with my knees without apology. I asked partners how they like to be touched and watched the way questions like that will break the space between two people wide open. But I hadn't gotten off in any partnered sex, and I was, like, frustrated. This is where I was when I pull into his driveway past the late summer garden for my orgasm intervention meeting. He brings me in as usual, makes me tea. We catch up on where we'd been. And I chat for a long time. He knows about this. Eventually, he asks, are you ready to get on the table? So I undress and lay down. And he... He touches me in all the ways that I like. 
He remembered all my favorite things. Soft blankets, the insides of my thighs, the insides of my arms, that spot underneath my ass. He pulled my hair a little. I mean, I was directing him, but he, he knew what the business was. And eventually, he had to help me again and ask, are you ready to have your pussy touched? I was mostly ready. So he got up on the table with me, and he sat straddling the massage table facing me. He pulled my legs over his thighs. And I was aware that he could see all of me. Instantly, I was worried about the time, if my pussy would be wet enough, that my face would look ugly in my arousal, that my breasts would be flat, and as always, that it would be boring. He starts slow, touches me softly, and when I ask him to put one finger inside me, I pull the blanket over my face. But I do a good job. I tell him to come in deeper, to be soft, to go harder, to use two fingers to press up, I'm doing it. I'm totally doing it. At one point, he presses up inside me, and my entire body lifts off the table. He's leaned over so far that my chest nearly collides with his head. I pull my arms up to hold him and ask, is this okay? Yes, he says, and his voice is thick and winded. I can feel the heat from him, the light sweat he's worked up. Sounds start to happen these whimpering, tonal, musical sounds that come from parts of me I didn't know were holding sounds. The concern that my pussy won't be wet enough is proving to be ridiculous, but now I'm worried that the sound it's making is gross. (laughs) I pulled the blanket over my face and off of my face and over my face trying to hide, but I'm there, and I'm present, and I'm writhing underneath him. And a feeling is building in my body. I have had lots of orgasms. I want to make that very clear. But this feeling was different, and it starts to scare me. And I I repeat involuntarily, what, 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 what is that feeling? And I start to cry. I tell him not to stop. He doesn't. He knows about it. My legs are shaking, and I feel embarrassed. And I try to stop them, but I can't. So I just hold on to his forearm, feeling his muscles move underneath his skin. Again, I ask him, what? What is that feeling? And he he doesn't stop or change his rhythm, but he looks at me and he says, it's your pleasure spot. And it's asking you to let go. And he gently presses up, and I call out a wild, sobbing, laughing pleasure into a sunny yellow room in Maine. I don't know what my body did that day. It was new and fucking great. It's done it since. It's a thing it does now. (laughs) Um, But... I didn't get the dark and dangerous, sultry sexuality I'd been hoping for once I got rid of all the parts in the way. I had to let go of the idea that there are parts of me to get rid of. What I have instead is like a sweet thing, a playful and delightful thing full of in-the-moment dad jokes and also crying. I still sometimes have to ask partners to remind me that it's not boring. I'm much better at asking for what I want. And he was right. I haven't been with anyone else that doesn't want to know. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Sufjan Stevens behind me now, and we just heard from Janelle Kodiani. You can find Janelle on Instagram at camper underscore empress. And before that, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. You probably don't have time to go to the post office. It's a hassle waiting in line, traveling there. But Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. It's a no-brainer. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. We use Stamps.com at Risk and at the Story Studio. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Our final story on this week's episode comes from a friend of mine. He shared this so beautifully at a recent Risk Live show in New York City, the monthly show we do at Caveat. This is Calvin S. Cato, who you can find at calvincato.com, with a story we call Father and Son. So it's spring of 2015 in New York City, and I'm with my father in the doctor's office, and the doctor tells my father, your liver cancer is advancing, and we need to discuss options. And the scariest word in that sentence is the word options, because my dad had been diagnosed with liver cancer for a year and a half now, and if you looked at him, you couldn't even tell. Like, it was such a innate part of him for a year and a half that it was just something that you would mention offhandedly like in an like an okay cupid profile you know you say like oh, i have brown eyes black hair liver cancer long walks in the beach like it was something that never really sank in until the doctor said options and so he told walked us through the options and he said well there's either surgery which would be a bit invasive there's a liver transplant there's chemotherapy there's radiation and then there's a combination of chemotherapy and radiation and i looked at my dad and my dad chose chemotherapy and radiation combination, and we'll see how it goes. And he said, okay, well, if you're going to choose that, what it's going to be is it's going to be five weeks of treatment from Monday through Friday. You're going to have to be here at 9 a.m. for treatment. Treatment is going to take anywhere from two to four hours, and then you have to go home. And then the doctor looks at me and says, can you take care of your dad through this? And I said, yes, because of course I can. But taking care of my dad in this way involves doing three things that I hate. Uh, one is driving in New York City. Because it's awful. <laughs> I had to relearn how to drive. And I swear to God, I've never used the word fuck in so many different permutations. <laughs> Did you know fuck can be a noun, a verb, and an interjection? Because it can be. <laughs> Just drive up Third Avenue. It's terrible. The second thing I had to do was wake up early, which I'm really terrible at. But the third thing, which is going to be the roughest part, was I'm going to have to spend at least four uninterrupted hours one-on-one with my father. 
And to give you a sense of like how my father and I could not be more different people. Like my dad is a big man. He was like 6'2", 250 pounds, like from Jamaica. Like real, like not Sebastian from the Little Mermaid Jamaica. Like real. <laughs> like I wake up and brush my teeth with curry goat Jamaica. <laughs> and in contrast, I am a slight, you know, 5'8", 140 on grinder. Um, <laughs> full-time comedian at the time. And I said full-time comedian not because I made money at it, but because I was just fired from yet another job. So <laughs> by default, I'm making negative $10 a day. So that's what I was doing. But I said, you know what? Nevertheless, he persisted. I was going to do this. I went to Zipcar. I rented a car. And I practiced driving so that I could do this for my father. And so I get ready. I gear up. And I'm driving my dad on day one of the five weeks of treatment. And day one is silent, like a very palpable, like, Uber driver wanting five stars silence. (laughs) It is rough. And so, but we make it through, and I was like, okay, I can do day two of this. So we get to day two. And day two is, there's some talking, but it's more him talking at me about how terrible my driving is. It's always a... You're driving too slow. Why did you cut this person off? Why didn't you cut this person off? Also, when are you going to get a job? And I'm just like white knuckling it the entire time <laughs> because I don't want to like just jump out of the car because I'd ruin my face and I need my face. So I'm like, I'm going to put up with this. It's okay. This is about my dad. And so right before I drop him off, after we go through the treatment, I tell my dad, I'm going to bring CDs in the car so that we can just have ambient music instead of silence or you criticizing me. And so I bring a flotilla of CDs for day three. And you know, there's some that he likes, some that he doesn't like. But the one that he really fixates upon is Eminem. <laughs> which makes no sense for a 58-year-old Jamaican man <laughs> who went to register nurse to like Eminem. <laughs> but I would put that Eminem CD in, and every time I would, he'd be like, that white boy is so angry. <laughs> and so crazy. <laughs> And it opened up some small talk at least. So I do this, and at the end of the week, I put in the CDs, we're listening like normal, I get distracted, and I miss the exit that I need to take to get back to his house. And he says, hey, you missed the exit that we needed to take. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry, I wasn't paying attention. And he said, oh, we're actually close to Coney Island. Do you wanna just go to Coney Island? And I hadn't gone to Coney Island with my dad in like several years. Again, my dad and I, we weren't close. We didn't really talk. Like the closest conversation that was deep that we had was maybe a year before that where I had to teach him how to use the space bar on his cell phone. And that was it. And like, I didn't even know what we would talk about. Like, I mean, I use phrases like, deconstruct the white male hegemony, like on the regular. Like, he can't relate. But we go to Coney Island and we get hot dogs from Nathan's and he said, hey, why don't we walk along the pier? And we start to walk along the pier. And my dad says, so you're still doing stand-up? And I said, yes, yes, I am. And he said, oh, how's that going? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's going well for what it is. And he says, you should talk to Steve Harvey. <laughs> Which does not make any modicum of sense. <laughs> I clearly do not know Steve Harvey. <laughs> but it was the first time I, that my dad tried My dad tried to understand. He tried to be there and say, hey, this is what I know about comedy is Steve Harvey. Be a king of comedy. See what happens. And so conversely, I asked my dad, I'm like, how do you feel? You know, you worked as a registered nurse and now you're kind of on the other side of it. How does that feel? And he said, it sucks. I don't like feeling in this powerless way. And I asked him, well, you know, what was the craziest thing you've ever had to handle as a registered nurse? And he said, well, there's one time I had to pull a knife out of a guy, but he survived, so it's not a big deal. And I could not believe that he was talking about this so casually. We just kept walking along the boardwalk, and we just really got to share and bond about each other's lives. And then we walked back to the car, and I drove him back home. And I said, well, um, it's Friday, but I will see you Monday, and we'll continue the drive. And then we two rolls around, and it's like that one moment, the floodgates just started to open. And we started to actually just talk to each other. So in the middle of the week, 
I made another detour, but this time I actually was sort of like not accidentally doing it. I sort of planned it. And so I said, hey, oh, whoops, we're on our way to Rockaway Beach, which is another place that my dad and I used to go when I was younger, and we would ride our bikes. And he said, well, hey, why don't we get out and walk? And we did the same thing. We got out, we walked, we shared about each other's lives. My dad stopped giving me comedy advice, which was very helpful. But we got to just talk, and it was so freeing and nice. I was like, you know what, like, I just want to keep doing this. And so I would continue to just make detours and my dad figured out that they were not detours. <laughs> it was more me deliberately doing this. And we would just detour and like just get to drive to all these places. And if my dad is feeling strong enough, we would get out and walk. And if my dad wasn't feeling strong enough, we would just drive, just keep driving and talking. There's one time where my dad, we were talking about his old coworkers, and he said, oh, it would be nice if I could catch up with my coworkers. And I just happened to drive past where his old, one of his old coworkers lived and they, we just started talking. And like my dad just started talking about like swapping like nurse war stories. And it was amazing. I had never seen the side of my dad before. Where I'm like, oh, my dad has friends and he talks to them. Oh my God. <laughs> it was awesome. And then at the same time, like my dad was also talking about how um, he said, oh, I also like, um, one of my friends is like this doctor who's gay, but he's fine, which is very progressive for my dad, trust me. <laughs> Again, Jamaican, very old school. A lot of mercy. So, like, as much as I was sharing all this stuff with my dad, my dad was sharing stuff with me, the one thing I never got to tell my dad was that I was gay. And so when my dad talked about this gay doctor, and he was like, oh, you know, he was just like a regular person. He was fine. I just didn't like the fact that he gossiped so much. And I was like, 25% of our conversations are you gossiping about your neighbors. Like, what are you talking about? We all gossip. (laughs) You just call it sharing the news. Like, it's the same thing. But after we had that conversation, I was like, okay, well, as we continue to do this, I'm going to ramp up to the fact that I can just tell him that I'm gay. And so we keep having these drives. We keep having these like deeper and deeper conversations. And I'm trying to find the right moment to tell him. You know, like I don't want to spring it on on a bad day, but I also don't want to spring it on on a good day. And then part of me was like, well, maybe I'll find a nice guy. And then he'll just like see me with him together and be like, oh, good for you. I won't have to pay your cell phone bill anymore. And then he could just let it go. But this keeps happening, this keeps happening. And then at the end of the five weeks, the doctor says, oh, uh, the five weeks are up. Your dad's body needs to rest. So you don't have to continue to drive him to and from the doctor's office every day. We get in the car. We take another detour. And my dad says, I know that it's time for my body to rest. But in case anything happens, I want you to know that I don't want to be resuscitated. I've been on the other side of this. And I've seen how people like are on life support for like months and years and it's just not the way I want to live and I said yes I uh, of course uh, if you say don't resuscitate I won't resuscitate but this isn't going to be what's going to happen and he said I know that's what you think but I want you to know that just in case do not resuscitate me but we still continue having our drives everything's fine until two months later when my dad calls me and he says I have to go to the hospital immediately and this is a Wednesday. And so we go into the hospital. I check my dad in. And the nurses and doctors are fretting over him. They're trying to figure out what's going on. I leave that Wednesday. And I come back Thursday. And I'm worried. You know, I don't want to have to deal with what may come. But I get back on Thursday. And my dad's feeling a little bit more lively. He's feeling better. And what's scary is that Friday, I had a big show that I was supposed to do. It was a show that was going to be like this big queer showcase in the Boston area um, before there was straight prides there. And um, <laughs> it's a big deal. I was very happy about this. And I said, if you want, I can cancel the show. I can be here for you. And he said, I know comedy is really important to you. I want you to go and do this show. I'll be out of here. Don't worry about it. So I leave on Friday and I do the show. And the show goes amazingly. It's like one of the best shows I've ever had. It's a wonderful audience. I finish the show and I get a call from my mom and she says, your dad isn't waking up. You need to come home. Can you come home? So I cancel the Saturday show. I take an overnight bus. I come back and I see him Saturday morning and somehow Saturday morning he's awake again. And I said, oh, okay, this is great. This is good. I don't care about the money. I'm just glad that you're awake. And he said, of course I'm awake. I'm fine. I had a blood transfusion. I'm going to be okay. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be out of here on Sunday. And so I go home. I go to sleep. And then I wake up in the middle of the night 
to a call from the doctor who says that you need to come in immediately. And so I come in and I wait for my mother to show up as well. And the doctor is talking to us and says, your dad has slipped into a coma. We're not really sure what we can do and we're doing everything that we can at this point to stabilize him and keep him okay, but we need to discuss options. And there's that word again, options. But this time, it's not a series of five options. There's really only two options, which is we can either continue to revive him and keep him on life support, or if you tell us not to resuscitate, we won't resuscitate. I didn't think I would have to get to the point where it was really one option. It's not two options. My dad told me what he wanted. And so I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and I watch this machine go from like beep and then every once in a while it would flatline a team of nurses would come in it would beep again and then by the third time the doctor asks me to make the call and so I tell the doctor what my dad wanted and I want to say that that Saturday was the last conversation I ever had but I had one more conversation with my dad after that which was at the funeral and so many like family friends showed up so many co-workers for my dad uh, hospital show up and it's stunning I didn't know so many people cared about him and, and as much as my dad shared all these stories it was nice to meet all the people who were in those stories this entire time and I wait until everyone files out and it's just me and my dad in the casket and I look over at my dad and I tell him I'm really sorry I really thought we would have more time to talk and also I'm gay <laughs> I love dick <laughs> And it was the first time that I wish my dad would have woken up and criticized me. (laughs) Thank you very much. is all for this week's episode folks this is the morning benders behind us now and we just heard from calvin s cato who you can find at calvincato.com if you want to see risk live information about where we're appearing next is always at risk-show.com slash tour And don't forget, we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. You know you get 15% off any of our in-person workshops if you use the offer code RISK at thestorystudio.org. There's also gift certificates that you can get there, so you can give the gift of storytelling training. We have one-on-one training over Skype. We have, like I said, our in-person workshops in New York and Los Angeles and Minneapolis. We have video courses you can take in your own time. We have our corporate training. We have taught so many wonderful, so many dynamic workshops for clients like Google or Pfizer or Citibank. Many, many more. You can find out more about it at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Yeah.
It's not my intention to do this in front of you. Gentlemen, what are your intentions? Even if your intentions are good, you can backfire drastically. It all comes down to intention. <laughs>